Well, as I said, they really are saying what I want to say anyway. You could just have listened to that one song. You know, we're talking about silence and voice this month in February. And, um, and I think that, that it's voice that most often appeals to those of us in ethical culture. I know a couple of weeks ago I told the joke that ethical culturists are Quakers who can't keep quiet. <laughs> I see it's funny every time. And... Uh, and, and we do. We like to talk. We like to have our voices heard. And so I want to explore why that is a little bit today and to talk about some of the benefits and the joys of being a religious tradition that calls for and is really built on many voices. And I want to talk a little bit about some of the challenges of being a religious tradition that's built on many voices and, and what, that, what that means, both the, the ways that it can be um, uh, challenging uh, to have that and the ways it can be challenging to do it, too. And then, um, and then see where we end up together. So, so let me start. I was rereading a book that I um, read in seminary as I prepared for this platform. I posted on Facebook. Those of you who are friends with me on Facebook saw that I, I had this experience of um, realizing that maybe everything I think was based on this book, which I don't remember reading, you know, it was many years ago, but, um, you know, when you read it through and I think, oh, I've done a platform on that chapter. Oh, that was December's platform was that chapter. So this book is called Faith Without Certainty. It's by Paul Razor, who is a, um, a theologian within the liberal religious tradition. He's a Unitarian Universalist himself, and it's really about what, what liberal uh, theology or liberal philosophy is about, faith without certainty. And so he says in this book, and I quote, liberals remain committed to such principles as free religious inquiry, autonomous judgment about truth claims, and openness to divergent views. I thought that that just encapsulated, you know, the way that many voices are part of the liberal religious tradition. Free religious inquiry, autonomous judgment, our own judgment about truth claims, and openness to divergent views. And that feels so true about West and about ethical culture. It's also true within Unitarian Universalism, but it's actually true within a lot of liberal religious traditions. Some of you know that I went to a Methodist seminary, and so I know a fair amount about Methodist theology. And, and um, Methodists really like order, so they have something called the, the Wesleyan quadrilateral, the four ways that you kind of seek truth in your own life or as a community. And the quadrilateral has some things you might not be surprised about. Scripture is one of the four ways that you seek truth. Tradition is one of the four ways. Reason is the third way. And then experience is the fourth way. I think sometimes we're surprised that so many of our brothers and sisters and, and fellow, um, fellow people of faith in, in traditions that feel pretty different from ours actually share many of those core values around the importance of human experience within their religious tradition, even as they also um, rely more heavily on scripture and on tradition than we might. So why do we, within a humanistic tradition or a liberal religious tradition, why do we like many voices, as Paul Razor said? Well, part of, of being liberal, actually, the really the definition of liberal means being open. And so I think that openness to many voices and openness to different ideas of truth, that's really integral to who we are and how we understand ourselves. And then, too, I think there's something about the importance of human experience, particularly within the humanistic tradition. 
You know, many of you are familiar with um, the humanist symbol of the guy kind of standing out. I think it's supposed to not be a guy. I think it's supposed to be just a human. It always looks like a guy to me. Um, and he's standing out like this. You know, yeah, we, we, we had, used to have a stained glass right there with the guy. Um, and, and many humanist, um, humanist communities use that guy. And as you may know, that guy, uh, it's sort of hard for me to do the guy from behind here, but that guy, um, that guy is based on Leonardo da Vinci's guy, right, um, in the circle. It was definitely a guy when Leonardo da Vinci did it. And... Um, <laughs> And, um, and, and it was really the, 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 the amazing thing about da Vinci's work, beside, of course, the artistry that was involved in it, was that he was shifting the perception of, of how we measure the world. And so what's famous about that guy in the circle of da Vinci's is that he's saying that humankind, it, it was mankind for da Vinci, but humankind is the measurement of all things. You know, he measures the span of the arm and the span of the legs as, as, that, as that man reaches out into the world. And so humanism as a movement, uh, as it started you know, and, and has evolved and has come to take on how we understand humanism today, has always had human experience as central to our understanding within the tradition. So I think that's part of why we love to have so many voices at the table and why we value the experience of each voice. I think then there's that importance of equality, which Paul Razor talked about a little bit, which sometimes looks like kind of um, a rejection of, of hierarchy, but I think at its heart is really about the inherent worth of every person, that deep value within ethical culture, within liberal religious traditions, that every person matters, every person is important, and therefore every voice is important, and in fact that we are poorer if we don't have all of those voices at the table with us, that we want to make sure that we hear every voice. That's connected for many of us in our governance to the concept of, of the democratic process within our congregations. You know, we bring many voices together to make a decision. I love the way Adam talked about the focus group. I think that's right, those focus groups we've been doing. It's trying to gather all of the voices and all of the wisdom in our community so that we can hear as deeply as possible what we're all thinking together. And I think that there are deep benefits to the, to the idea of calling for many voices within our religious tradition. One of the ways in which I think we benefit from that is that as more voices and more human experiences are brought into who we are together, as we share those with each other, our tradition evolves. Our religion, our understanding of the world evolves based on those human experiences. And so over time, and this is one of the kind of key elements of a liberal religious tradition, that, that the tradition changes and becomes more and more relevant to the lives that we live now. So we're not kind of stuck with an old tradition that doesn't make sense because we're always learning and building from the experiences and the voices that each of us bring. Kathleen Rowlands, a Unitarian Universalist minister, just um, wrote a great article in UU World that I want to quote that I think speaks to the beauty of many voices in a liberal religious tradition. She wrote, our belief, she, she, she talked about the importance of our belief that spiritual wisdom speaks with many voices. Spiritual wisdom speaks with many voices. I like that. This understanding, she goes on, is the key to welcoming all souls into our faith communities as blessings. Every new person we encounter has something to teach us. 
Values such as love, peace, compassion, and justice are expressed in every culture and tradition all over the world in beautifully and powerfully different ways. End quote. So I think she's, she's speaking to the richness that we find when we invite all those varied and different experiences that we have out in the world into our community together. I think, too, that, that our practice of listening to and eliciting and calling for many voices works against what can sometimes be a challenge in the liberal religious tradition and really a challenge in modern American culture, and that's the idea of self-centeredness of individualism. You know, we talked in September, I think, about the difference between individualism and um, and individuality, you know, sort of being unique versus being um, unique and everything should sort of center around your uniqueness. I think I called it princess culture at the time because I have a five-year-old daughter. And... um, and so, and so the, the practice of listening to multiple voices helps to remind us that our voice isn't the only one. It's not always the most important one, but that we're part of a community with lots of different individuals, each of them unique, each of them different. And then I think our practice of listening to many voices can make, and I think, I think that Kathleen Rollins is really getting to this in, in what she says, it can make interfaith work possible, it can make multiculturalism possible as we honor and really love the diversity of thought and experience that we have and that we bring together. And you know, really, there's nobody like a liberal religious person for interfaith work. You know, we we know how to speak to many voices because often leading a congregation is sort of like interfaith work (laughs) for a liberal religious clergy person. So then we're great at it when you get us out into the world, you know, and we've got folks from all kinds of different religious traditions. I think that our, our love for many voices, it both stems from, and in its practice, it reinforces our belief in the inherent worth of every person, the inherent worth of every voice. And I think... I think that 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 practice and that belief is linked to our social justice call out in the world as well. That so frequently the justice work that we're drawn to is work that ensures that every person's voice can be heard. Because we believe that every person's voice matters, and so we want to make sure we create a world where each voice can be heard. I heard that in the story this morning that Tony shared with us of Anna Garland Spencer's work, the way that Anna Garland Spencer found her voice at a time when, when women's voices weren't so loud, maybe, and also how she helped James, the little boy James, to find his voice, and the, the voices that she heard, that she listened for, and then found space for, um, the voices of children who were working in mills and in mines, Uh, all over our country as she worked for child labor laws. So I think that our belief in the importance of every voice is really behind a lot of our justice work, and that's such a a gift, I think. So then what are some of the limits of listening to so many voices? I want to share again something that Paul Razor said in that book I mentioned at the beginning, Faith Without Certainty. As he's talking about the many voices and sort of liberal religious tradition, he says, he talks about the the deep commitment to inclusivity, a mark of religious liberalism. Yet, this open-mindedness can also make us reluctant to commit ourselves too deeply to anything. 
whether a belief or a plan of action, leading to a reluctance to commit to the liberal religious movement itself. So I think what he's talking about is sometimes when we have so many voices out there and every voice matters, then we as a community can have trouble figuring out what we're kind of coalescing around, you know, what it is that we're doing together. That can be a challenge, I think, as we welcome all of these voices together. Not an insurmountable challenge by any means, but a challenge. And then I think sometimes it's just challenging It's challenging to do, it's challenging to listen to all of these voices and to listen to them really well. Sometimes, and I'm only speaking personally here, obviously, I'm sure none of you have had this experience. Sometimes, when I say, oh, I I welcome all of these voices and I want to hear all of these voices, what I really mean is all of these voices that sound pretty much like my voice give or take a little bit. So we struggle sometimes with with what it looks like to welcome in all these voices and what we kind of do about that. We struggle with what to do when the voices contradict each other, when they sound different or when what they're saying is really different, when their experiences are different. I think, you know, I I said that, that serving a community like this can sometimes be sort of interfaith work in and of itself, And and I think that's such a live question for us in this community, in any community like this. As we share our different human experiences and our different voices, which of those voices are legitimate for us? Which of them are true? Do they need to be true? Does your truth need to be the same as my truth? I think that's something that we continue to evolve around and to wonder And what are the limits on the voices that we acknowledge or allow? I think frequently we're we're comfortable with lots of different kinds of voices out there in the world, in the real interfaith world, right? And then when we come in here, we're not quite sure how many voices, how many different kinds of voices we want as we come together. What the voices should be in here, in our community, in our space with each other. I think for many of us, I've been thinking a lot about this recently. I've had some some great conversations with some of you, and as we've been doing more and more anti-racism work and and dreaming more and more about being a multicultural community and what that would really look like for us, and thinking about how the practice of listening to different voices is related to anti-racism and multicultural work, what that means. And I think it's related both in a really practical way, you know, people from different cultures often use different kinds of language, you know, so, so that's the, the practical piece as we, as we seek to be multiracial and multiethnic and all of that means we may also be multilanguage and we need to kind of figure that out with each other. But there's also, I think, um, sort of a slipperier way, almost a, a practice way. That in some ways the practice of hearing and believing what people say to you in a theological context or a philosophical context, when their experience of the world is different from yours, and the practice of listening to it and, and believing it in some ways, even if it doesn't resonate for you, that that's related to the practice of hearing an experience of someone from a different cultural background, an experience of the world that's really different from your own. 
but that you believe, you know, that that's the experience that they've had in the world. Kathy Rowlands in that article talks about that particular link between sort of listening deeply to each other in multicultural work about diversity. And she writes this, true multiculturalism means being humble and brave enough to explore our different perspectives, experiences, traditions, and values while staying in relationship. It means bringing our whole selves to the table, our whole selves, and inviting others to do the same, not just the parts that fit in. It means being willing to be changed, end quote. Now, I think that there's a legitimate question about how willing a community is to be changed, about sort of about how we define the we, the who we are. I was thinking about the One Voice song that was so beautiful this morning and about the experience of hearing the sort of layered harmonies of all of those voices as they came together. And of course, at the very end of the song, you know, they, they sing with particular harmonies and there are many voices and then they, they sing in another way and they're one voice all together. And thinking about the fact that we were very lucky to have these three voices that were so beautiful with each other, and I don't want to forget Johnny on guitar, who also was beautiful. <laughs> these three voices that were so beautiful together, and you can sometimes have voices that don't sound right together, you know? Somebody who's really off, off. <laughs> that would be me, actually, if I were singing with them. That would be me. And you would think, mm, sure that this is really working for me. So there's a legitimate question about sort of, if you think of a community's life together as a song, about how many harmonies we can put together in such a way that it sounds just right with each other. And which strains don't work in that song. Any community has boundaries, you know? That's part of what being a community is. And so part of, I think, what we, what we explore all the time in any liberal religious community is where those boundaries are, how permeable they are, they are how movable they are, and where we want to put them so that we're welcoming in all those voices and we're getting the strength of all of those voices. And at the same time, we know who we are and what we commit to together. So I just want to notice that. That's a real question a live question for us to consider and think about and discern together as a community. Sharon Welch, who is an ethicist um, uh, within, uh, within the liberal religious tradition, puts it this way. How much difference can a community hold? How much critique? Now, Sharon Welch thinks the answer is basically a ton she goes on, talking, she's talking about the sort of um, the community value of common ground, that what a community is built on is the idea of common ground together. And here's what she says about it. What bothers me about the calls for common ground is that this very concept of community is predicated on denying what I see as the richness of community, a richness created as much by difference and surprise I, I love that, actually. Difference and surprise, as by similarity and affirmation. We often quote Felix Adler, the founder of ethical culture, and one of his, um, one of his big phrases was diversity in creed, unanimity in deed. 
everybody likes it because it's kind of pithy and you can say it. And it's a great phrase, diversity in creed, unanimity indeed. And I think for us, often we quote it because we're emphasizing the deed part, the part that we get to do together. You know, we want to be a community that walks together, that works together, that even if we believe differently, we can act together. That's how I say it when I, when I sort of you know, try to translate unanimity for people, which isn't a word that we use a whole awful lot in the 21st century. I say, even though we believe differently, we can act together. But sometimes I think we forget that diversity in creed part as we struggle and wonder what Adler might have meant by that half of the sentence. And we can see that not just diversity in creed, but all kinds of different diversity, all kinds of human experiences that we bring to the table. So those are some of the ways that I think it can be challenging to really hear different voices, to take very seriously that call to honoring and valuing and listening for the many voices in our community. And holding this kind of it's not about common ground community that Sharon Welch calls us to can be tiring, frankly. It can be exhausting, both emotionally and physically and spiritually, I think. It's sort of like trying to make a decision when you have too many people telling you what to do. Have you ever experienced that? You know? And you've got people saying to make a pro-con list, and other people are saying, no, you should flip a coin. That's always what my mother told me. Just flip a coin. I think she's a psychologist, so then you were supposed to see how you felt about it. You know, <laughs> Anyway, so there's all, all these people telling you all these ways to make a difficult decision. When really the person you need to be listening to is yourself. So often we know the answer already. And I think in a community like ours where we're struggling with those big questions, and I don't mean struggling in a bad way, I mean struggling in a good way, but still it's a struggle with those big questions of where our boundaries are and who we are and how we welcome in different opinions and different voices and different experiences. That it's in a community like that that we most need the ability to go inside ourselves. To be deeply within, to listen to that still, small voice that we sang about this morning. In fact, I think openness to other experience is actually more possible when we know most deeply who we are at our heart, at our root. Paul Razor, referring to Jürgen Habermas, says... Quote, the concept of a social self, so who we are in community, does not preclude the emergence of a fully individuated self, who we are just ourselves. And then the philosopher Selah ben Habib says, I love how she puts it, the I becomes an I only among a we in a community of speech and action. So she's saying that, that we are ourselves specifically within the community that struggles with who the we is. I am myself specifically within that community. And then finally from Paul Razor, he's talking about fear of the other, something that he feels we struggle with in liberal religious communities. Fear of the other manifests itself in such liberal ideas as autonomy, self-reliance, and the like, and prevents us from seeing that we are truly social selves. But a love-based understanding of community, he goes on, would extend the individual and expand the self outward toward the other. 
So there's this deep sense of connection that I think he sees and that he wants us to work for, that I certainly want to work for myself, that starts with who I am. And then using love extends who I am out to the person who's different. It necessitates, I think, that we are at a point where we understand, where we know really deeply that a voice very different from our own doesn't threaten our voice. And it calls for a kind of balance in a community like this one. To be able to find the individual self within community. To hold on to the sort of two core principles, the inherent worth of every person and the idea that we're all connected to each other. You can't have one without the other, you know. You have to have them both at the same time. And so, as I've said, that requires a strong inner voice, a strong sense of self. Conversely, you know, you might think to be connected really deeply in community, you should kind of let go of who you are. But no, I think it's really about strength within yourself. So how do we find that voice within? How do we hear it? I think it's really often about turning off the other voices, about the importance of quiet in our lives. In a couple of weeks, we'll talk about what that might or might not mean for us within the context of prayer. That will be a different voice. Doesn't that sound fun and exciting? (laughs) Josh Blender will be here doing the music keeping us all light and happy. (laughs) But it's really any kind of quiet. You know, it's any space where we can just be deeply with and within ourselves. Any time where we're called to listen to ourselves. Many of us find that out in nature, going for walks, You might find it in your daily sitting zazen for an hour practice, in which case you are definitely my role model. You might find it in the few moments of silence that we share together on a Sunday morning. You might find it on your commute when you can just sit on the bus and be quiet with yourself. Any kind of listening to who you are deeply within yourself will actually make you even more able to hear the voice next to you when you're ready for that. I'd like to close with words from Howard Thurman. I've used them before, and so if they sound familiar, I just invite you to welcome them like the voice of a good friend. How good it is to center down, to sit quietly and see oneself pass by. The streets of our minds seethe with endless traffic, our spirits resound with clashings, with noisy silences, while something deep within hungers and thirsts for the still moment and the resting lull. With full intensity we seek, ere the quiet passes, a fresh sense of order in our living. A direction, a strong purpose that will structure our confusion and bring meaning in our chaos. We look at ourselves in this waiting moment, the kind of people we are. The questions 
persist? What are we doing with our lives? What are the motives that order our days? What is the end of our doings? Where are we trying to go? Where do we put emphasis? And where are our values focused? For what end do we make sacrifices? Where is my treasure and what do I love most in life? What do I hate most in life and to what am I true? Over and over questions beat in upon the waiting moment. As we listen floating up through all the jangling echoes of our turbulence, there is a sound of another kind. A deeper note which only the stillness of the heart makes clear. It moves directly to the core of our being. Our questions are answered. Our spirits refreshed and we move back into the traffic of our daily round. With the peace of the eternal in our step. How good it is to center down.